Hello everyone, my name is Anasil Sabag and this is Something About Everything. My guest today is Dr. Peter Carr. He is a lecturer at the University of Waterloo, one of the leading Canadian universities in technology and innovation. He is also the director of three certificate programs at the University of Waterloo that are focused on tech, entrepreneurship and business. His research puts the spotlight on the impact of technology on society. And today we are going to be talking about whether social media is promoting freedom and democracy or fighting them. So I wanted to start the conversation about democracy and social media with the simplest kind of example, like North America or the Western world in general. And a great example of social media's impact on developed countries is the US, where social media has essentially become sort of a battleground for people from all over the political spectrum, especially with the current volatile political state. People are just using social media more and more. So how do you feel about social media's impact on democracy in developed countries that already have democracies in place? I, I think it's you know very interesting how people's views of the role that social media is playing in democracy uh, have changed over the years. We went through at the beginning where everybody thought that social media was going to be really good for democracy and would more democracy to happen all over the world uh, to a point now where probably the majority opinion uh, would be that social media is not very good for democracy, that it's causing situations where fake news is meaning that people are getting information that's influencing their voting that's inaccurate that it's doing things that are making people more extreme or more likely to hold extreme views and that in some way democracy is being damaged right to the point where people are saying, you know, have we now moved to an era where it's no longer possible for us to have democracy. And, uh, you know, my view is that social media is a tool. It's something uh, that can be used in support of democracy, and it's something that can be used by people who are opponents of it. And I think that really what we're uh, going through just now uh, is working out how society will, uh, will, will allow social media to contribute to democracy and the extent to which we need to have uh, practices, regulations, and controls, which mean that social media is something that's good for democracy uh, and not something that causes it damage. But I don't think we've worked out how those things are going to uh, happen in the future, what those regulations might be, the sorts of things we can do. Uh, and while we go through this period, uh, I, I think people are very uh, you know, insecure and worried about what the outcome might be. Uh, at the same time, there are a lot of people who would like to destroy democracy, and I don't think it's certain that uh, social media will mean that democracy uh, is strengthened or even survives. And I think right now is the time when uh, it's really important that people who believe in democracy uh, do things to protect and hopefully make it better. It's interesting you bring up the point of regulation. D don't you feel that regulation or regulating how people voice their opinions or use tools available to them, don't you feel that that's anti-democracy? Or are you just talking about regulating the extremes? 
I think it's a really important point that you're making that, that uh, people's ability to express themselves, uh, to say what they think without fear of, uh, you know, being controlled uh, or being persecuted in some way for what they say is a really important part of uh, of democracy. But we've always had regulations uh, have been, you know, meant to ensure that democracy operates effectively. So uh, before we had social media, it was illegal for people to take money from foreign powers uh, uh, for their political campaigns. So there were controls there to stop external countries. You know, the example, of course, just now is Russia in the US. Uh, but of course, that has also existed with other countries. And, you know, there have been controls around these things that are intended to protect democracy itself. There's also been controls, but the opinions of how powers should be exercised, the amounts that there should be have varied, but there have been controls around what people are allowed to say in many countries that we'd consider to be democratic. For example, uh, in Germany after the Second World War, there were a lot of controls on organizations that might have been, you know, leaning towards and spreading messages that were, you know, anti-Jewish or racist or fascist in some way. And that was thought to be to protect uh, democracy. Opinions on that vary in different parts of the world. In North America, were more inclined to open expression, you know, to uh, really go quite a long way in saying that people should, that there should be practically nothing that people aren't allowed to say. Uh, in Europe, with their history of fascism and, you know, the time since the Second World War, uh, there have, it's been quite common for them to say, you know, that, that there are things that people shouldn't be allowed to say. Hate speech, for example, you know, encouraging uh, aggression or violence towards people uh, on the basis of their race or their gender or their sexuality uh, is something that, uh, you know, many countries have laws about. So it's never been true that democracy has meant that people are allowed to do and say absolutely anything. There have been protections there. And, you know, what we're still trying to do with social media is to work out uh, how those protections can be provided for people and protect uh, democracy. It's something to really look into. It's a, kind of a chicken and egg situation. Should you let people go completely free? So that will cause radicalization or it's the other way around. Radicalization starts first and that's why you need to let people go free. Yeah, and I think that you asking the question is really important because today many people would think that there is a lack of tolerance of other people's ideas. You know, the world's become uh, quite polarized at the moment. You know, you either love Donald Trump or you hate him. And they are, for most people, that's the case. And there's been a lack of tolerance of other people's ideas. And, you know, that is something that we do need to think carefully about, probably. You know, at the moment, the world needs uh, a bit more tolerance than, and uh, allowance of people to speak than we've seen. This brings me to my next point. So I want to talk more about uh, democracy and social media in developing countries. And just to give the audience a bit of a background or people who aren't really familiar with politics in the Middle East or in developing countries, social media has gone through a very interesting cycle within the Middle East. Uh, I usually summarize the reaction of the regimes to social media in four different stages. So it started off in the early, I would say early 2000s or closer to 2000. 
2005, 2006, where the regimes started off by brushing off social media and attributing social media to the misguided youth. And they thought it's really weak and they thought it's too weak to do anything. And then the second stage was when they realized how social media is quite powerful and they quickly reacted by trying to break communication in their most traditional ways like restricting internet and telephone coverage. That usually lasted days. We've seen it in Tunisia, we've seen it in Egypt, in Syria, where they try to cut out the networks for a few days. And then they're getting more sophisticated, as you see, with each stage. So the third stage is when they realize that they cannot control social media with their traditional techniques. So they started getting their loyalists, people who are loyal to the long-standing oppressive regimes to launch propaganda campaigns and basically participate in the same activities as the people who are trying to lead a revolution, but in the opposite direction. And now we're in this fourth stage where basically the governments have become very well accustomed with social media and are now using online propaganda agents where they spread agents who attack anyone that speaks out against the government. And then they also have developed this highly sophisticated surveillance. So how do you feel about social media's impact on democracy in developing countries? I think the description you've given of the stages that it's gone through uh, is interesting and accurate. Um, You know, I remember back in about 2011, we had the Arab Spring, uh, and there was lots of optimism then. I mean, there's plenty of footage on YouTube where you'll hear people saying, uh, you know, that are quite authoritative, you know, university professors and others, saying that, you know, Facebook was causing this uh, global democracy revolution. Uh, And clearly, since then, the things that have happened uh, in the way that you've described. But I think there are two sides to it. force for democracy and also it's a force against it. There's now a lot of pessimism because authoritarian regimes have uh, reasserted their power. They've become much more sophisticated uh, in their use of social media to control their populations uh, and it might be argued that social media would be a force uh, against uh, democracy and that certainly seems to be what's happening at the moment. At the same time, I think there are are still influences there that are uh, pushing towards democratization. We may look at, uh, and this is maybe arguable, but we might look at Saudi Arabia at the moment uh, and say that the progress in some areas that there's been there, uh, the lack of progress maybe in others, but the progress in some areas has been a response to the fact that citizens of Saudi Arabia Uh, have been exposed through the internet and social media to uh, other possibilities in the way that their society might operate. And the government, to some extent, has uh, has been forced to respond to that. But I think the overall position that you've described of... Uh, you know, the the governments uh, exerting a lot more control, using social media for control, uh, has reduced expectations and uh, made it, uh, you know, less likely that we're going to see big changes towards democracy there in the near future. 
Like you said, them being able to adapt to social media, they turned the tides because when social media did start in the Middle East, it started off pro-democracy and people were using it for change because, as you may know, in many repressive regimes, the media and the government are intertwined into this one entity that's basically trying to limit people's thinking and feed them a basic set of ideas about what a government is, what stability is. But then social media kind of changed that because people were now going and grabbing information on their own and sharing it. But that's like a double-edged sword because like you said earlier, that the lack of barriers to entry makes it easy for someone to spread fake news, so to speak. But on the other end, it can be also very good for people who don't have the resources or the power to relay some information are able to. It's interesting, you brought up Saudi Arabia and that kind of ties in to my next point of social media and repression. But uh, you know McKinsey, the consulting company? I don't know if you heard about the report that they were issuing to Saudi Arabia where the report was quote-unquote intended to measure public perception of Saudi Arabia's policies. And the backfire of this report was that Saudi Arabia used this to track down the top three Twitter influencers, basically Saudis that spoke out against the Saudi government. And the, the results of that were really interesting. One of the Twitter users was arrested. The second, because he was out of the country, two of his brothers were arrested within the country. And the third one, who was anonymous, was basically shut down over Twitter. So like you said, we're seeing this liberalization or giving people rights in one end, but then they're using social media to actually repress people. So do you think social media is being used more for repression than freedom? Um, I think that's a, a very broad question to answer. And uh, and I think the answer would be that I think in some areas it's being used for repression, some areas for freedom, wh- whether I could measure which is happening more, I think would be really uh, very difficult. I don't think it would be possible to accurately, you know, say which is more dominant at the moment in the world. I'd, I'd be very interested to see any work that might be done to try and establish that. I've got a couple other things to mention. The first is the social credit scoring that is being done in China uh, and which is due to be rolled out much more broadly, I think, in 2020. This is the idea that people's use of social media and their behavior more generally in society will be allocated a score, and this is already happening to some degree, which will then uh, determine their access to education, to government services of one kind or another, their ability to travel both internally and externally from China. Uh, And this social credit score would be used clearly as a means of enforcing uh, people's conformity with the society. And that's something that's likely to happen in China. Other repressive regimes are, you know, if China are successful at it, why wouldn't they use it? And that's something I think we want to be very careful about and to watch. On the other hand, it's generally thought that economic development requires a measure of democratization in order to happen effectively. You know, as companies develop economically, they want people to be able to think. People need to be more educated, which generally Generally tends to mean they demand more democracy and they also usually are demanding more freedom and are encouraged to participate be more highly motivated within the organizations and within their society so as repressive 
regimes seek to develop economically, that has often meant that those countries at the same time have been forced to accept a level of democracy. And so that may be something that provides room for hope in the future for how these countries might democratize. The other thing that's worth mentioning is that it's very interesting to see in many developing countries some of the discussions which are taking place about how social media might play a part in the form that democracy might take. This is especially interesting inside South America, where there are a lot of discussions around how municipal government, particularly, but national governments as well, might use social media to uh, enable higher levels of participation inside their countries as they seek to become more democratic. You know, that it would be used for more consultation by city government, for people to participate in, you know, development of policy and things like that. Those discussions are especially active in South America, uh, but they are taking place elsewhere where people who are believers in democracy are thinking, you know, how can we use social media to create stronger democracy than we've had before? And this is especially a discussion in countries where democracy is new uh, or where there are, you know, movements that are very strong in support of extending democracy. And South America is where we're seeing a lot of that just now. I really love your perspective of bringing in the economic aspect of it. And it is a fact that social media is promoting economic growth by giving people a more customer-centric advertisement and stuff like that. So from your perspective, if the economy is developing, they will have to give their people a bit more freedom so they can keep up with that economic growth. And that's a very interesting perspective. So there is hope. There is, but there is also one caveat to that, which I really probably should say, which is that was the hope as far as China was concerned. Many people who looked at China, looked at, you know, the nature of the democracy in the society there, uh, thought that as China became more prosperous, it would, would inevitably democratize. And there's quite a, you know, a fierce argument at the moment over you know the chinese government arguing that the weaknesses of democracy in the West, in particular things like Brexit and Donald Trump and, and basically some of the chaos that we're seeing in Western democracies just now, that this really says that the Chinese way is better. That's what the Chinese government is arguing just now. And whether we're going through a difficult patch in Western democracies just now that will come through in the not too distant future, and democracy will continue to be strong uh, is uh, another discussion. But that's quite an important argument about democracy just now. The Chinese government saying, you know, the chaos of the West means that all this stuff that was said about China needing to democratize for economic reasons is no longer relevant. So uh, I think it's still important, something which will influence the way democracy is in the future. But there's a fierce, you know, battle of ideas over this at the moment. Yeah, it does make sense. This can be used by repressive regimes to basically point out how freedom and democracy in the West is leading to this volatile situation that is hindering economic growth. Moving on to the next point, since we're talking about China, I wanted to discuss Project Dragonfly and read a quick snippet from the petition that was written by the Google employees to essentially stop this project and put an end to it. 
The Chinese government certainly isn't alone in its readiness to stifle freedom of expression and to use surveillance to repress dissent. Dragonfly in China would establish a dangerous precedent, one that would make it harder for Google to deny other countries similar concessions. What do you think of this statement? I think companies like Google have, you know, a lot, a lot of challenges in dealing with governments like the Chinese government, where they're keen to gain access to the Chinese market, and at the same time, you know, they're only going to be allowed to do that uh, if they conform with what the Chinese government expects them to do and provide information which will help them with the repression of their citizens. A lot of Google employees, as you're quote uh, highlights uh, have said you know that they don't want to cooperate with that there's been a lot of discussion and activity amongst the employees of the big tech companies uh, around you know what their response should be to that and overall i think it's really important that the tech companies don't do things that are helping countries to engage in repression there is a need to respect cultural concerns perhaps and some aspects of the content that is available in different countries perhaps some countries are more conservative than others but i think it's fairly straightforward to say that the big technology companies should not be helping uh, countries to engage in repression you know there are clear lines there that uh, that they shouldn't be crossing Yeah, exactly. Because what I think of it is traditional industries like the consulting industry, for example, like with McKinsey and companies like that, have already set a very shady moral scale where they have helped countries like Saudi Arabia and the scandal with South Africa. But the more modern tech companies, you'd expect a different moral scale from them. And like you said, it's a very powerful precedent that will be set by Google if it accepts or goes through with this project. So we're in a very dangerous spot right now with all the tech companies. And I hope Google doesn't go through with that project, really. Yeah, so do I. And I think that it's interesting just now that the employees of the tech companies are now starting to resist this and that there is a discussion over what's appropriate for them to do. I think that's encouraging, you know, that there is that people are starting to question it. That's a good thing. And, you know, the employees of the company shouldn't be our main line of defense as far as these things are concerned. I mean, it's good that the employees are, you know, expressing their concerns. They can see what's going on. They've got more knowledge of it than most other people do, probably. And it's good that they're highlighting the issue. But if they're the only people who are exercising resistance about this, that's probably not enough. Uh, there should be governments in the West should be expressing their concerns about it. Uh, and the people who are leading Google and the other companies uh, should also be expressing their concerns and, uh, and acting uh, in more appropriate ways. 
I agree with most of what you said, but I don't know about the part where you want countries in the West to actually take action because they have clearly shown that they are more fluid when it comes to morals and ethics, especially with the recent murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and how the leader of the biggest democratic country in the world just came out and said, yeah, we're not sure if the crown prince was involved or not, so we won't do anything about it. And they maintained all their agreements like the weapon trade and all the investments of the Saudi government within the US. So I don't know, I, I'm I'm kind of hesitant to rely on governments. But like you said, it's nice to see resistance from the employees, but it's very concerning to not see resistance from management or leadership of Google. Yeah, I mean, this weekend, the G20 is meeting in Argentina. And, you know, this is the sort of thing they should be talking about. I, I don't have a sense that they are, but they should be talking about how uh, should technology be being used in the world? And, you know, how do we deal with technology being used for repression in the same way as they might talk about how they deal with, you know, governments using physical weapons or chemical weapons or whatever it might be against their own citizens or they try and stop the spread of nuclear arms. Allowing technology to spread that is used to oppress people uh, is something that, you know, together countries that are trying to work to do some good, which hopefully some of the G20 are trying to do, this should be something they're focused on. Yeah, exactly. Because like you said, social media is a tool. Like all the weapons that they discuss and all the restrictions they put on weapons, technology and social media should be brought into the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And and as part of that discussion, they might talk about how countries uh, interfere in each other's affairs with it as well. You know, I mean, I'm almost surprised that they don't, and maybe they do, and I don't know, but Uh, I'm almost surprised that they don't have a big item on their agenda to talk about Russian interference in American elections. And I'm not naive enough to think that America might not be doing that to some other countries. But, you know, this is an area where you would think they would have a desire to, you know, establish agreements on the way that people should behave. I want to shift the conversation now. I want to shift it more towards the social and psychological aspects of social media. Many people bring this up, how you see so much death, despair, and you feel very powerless, such as with Yemen or the war in Syria, or even like natural disasters like in Puerto Rico not too long ago. Do you feel like social media with spreading of all this negative energy is causing a general state of political and social apathy? I think it's a good question. I think in many circumstances it's not. Um, I think that it has caused in some, in a lot of cases, a lot more political activism. Um, I think visibility of, uh, you know, what really happens in wars uh, or what's really happening in natural disasters has led the public to respond to that has made it more difficult for governments often, you know, to do things bad with their militaries. Um, You know, those things are more obvious to us, but partly as a result, uh, and more visible, but as a result of that visibility, I think that has caused more hesitation 
and less willingness to do these things or less ability for some governments to do these things. Overall, uh, you know, in spite of the things that we see, uh, the world is relatively peaceful at the moment. And I don't think there's a sign because of that that people are becoming more uh, apathetic. Uh, at the same time, what is a concern as far as apathy is concerned, I think is the cynicism that is uh, arising about politics in general. I think that the, uh, you know, the political behaviors that we're seeing, particularly in the U.S., where American politics is like a soap opera at the moment, um, where every few hours, uh, partly because of the media cycle and you know the the desire for to get viewers for CNN and others, uh, that it almost just seems that the whole thing's a circus, that people are just uh, bickering and fighting with each other, uh, and there's nothing really positive going on. So uh, that's where I would apply the uh, thinking that you are reflecting in your question uh, as far as the danger of apathy uh, creeping into politics. That said, in the midterm elections in the US, the turnout was much higher than it's been for a long time. Uh, and the turnout in uh, and interest in things in Europe around Brexit and in some of the elections that are taking place there uh, you know, indicate, I, I don't think there's any real sign that people are turning away from politics. Yes, that's what I'd like to attribute as a positive for social media, that as much as people say that it's alienating and it's causing lots of fighting and bickering, it's getting segments of the population who usually weren't that interested in politics more involved. But again, it's the way that it's dragging them in is concerning sometimes because some people are getting into politics or feel like they have to participate because of the scare tactics or the fake news that's spreading through social media. Yes, and that in many areas is doing a lot of harm. I mean, particularly in developing countries in India, I think, is where this we've particularly seen this, but also in other parts of Asia, particularly, you know, rumors have resulted in people being lynched and killed uh, that were, you know, untrue. Uh, and these things were done by political opponents or, you know, people who uh, were of a different religion or caste or whatever it might be. So this whole this whole problem of false information, fake news, is, you know, a whole other area for discussion. And uh, I think over time, it is going to become less of a problem. I think people are going to become educated to it. Um, you know, I think we need education about fake news, how to know if something's real or not. I think we need education about that inside schools. But I think it, we're going through a period just now where people are seeing a lot of information. They're not very good at filtering it. But I think that filtering is going to improve and we're going to see that decline as a problem. It will become less effective for the people who are spreading it because people are going to become better at you know working out whether it's true or not. I also felt like with education and with adaptation to social media, people will be able to more control their emotions regarding the news that they see. Because I, I think lots of the irrational fears that people develop are basically because of an excess of emotion or not really understanding or not having a very strategic 
way of breaking down news between real and fake news, something that is just trying to scare you or something that is actually informative for you. Education now becomes very important as to help make better use of uh, social media. Yeah, and education has always done that before we had social media and fake news. Education is all about helping people understand the world and develop the, you know, or some parts of education are about helping people develop the skill set of being able to interpret the world and lead good lives. And, uh, you know, we just haven't got the fake news uh, tools available yet. We're not teaching them yet, but I think that's going to change. Okay, so my next point is a very controversial one, and it relates social media and radicalism. So the UNESCO actually commissioned a study titled Youth and Violent Extremism on Social Media, and it's a mapping research. It basically is a review of many papers, over 550 papers published in the early 2000s, and it's basically discussing the roles played by social media in violent radicalization processes, especially when they affect youth and women. And the research responds to the belief that, you know, internet at large is an active vector for violent radicalization that facilitates the proliferation of violent extremist ideologies. So in short, do you think social media promotes radicalism? Uh, in short, yes. I think it makes it easier for people to enter a bubble where they're only really communicating with people that agree with them. Uh, and I also think that, uh, you know, the whole issue of fake news means that there's a lot of information out there that may be false, uh, which is uh, in support of those radical uh, opinions. I mean, I, I see two different types of it. There's a very uh, violent radicalism that is encouraging people to become terrorists and other things. Uh, there, uh, you know, I think it's very important work is done to stop that. Um, uh, and, and I have no problem about censorship and and how security forces going online and doing what they need to do to deal with that. I think the other part of the radicalism is, you know, to some extent reflected in the rise of populism in many countries where politicians uh, have emerged, have risen, who are uh, with have messages that they're giving to the public, which they know the public want to hear, uh, but which are going to be very difficult, if not impossible to implement in practice. Again, in America, we see Donald Trump with that. We see the people who argued for Brexit uh, in the UK taking that position. There's populists now in power or close to power in many countries at the moment. And what they share in common is they're making promises they can't deliver on. Uh, but I think the internet has helped that rise. But I think over time, as these people get into power, uh, things are going to start to change uh, because they're not going to be able to deliver on what they're promising and there will be a degree of realism that will set in that will help to deal with it. But has the internet helped this to happen? Absolutely. Yes, I think it has. That is an interesting perspective because that was the conclusion of the report. And I'll quote here or paraphrase a bit from the report. It's basically saying social media constitutes a facilitating environment rather than a driving force for violent radicalization. 
or the actual commission of violence. This is very important to keep in mind because people would attribute radicalization to social media. And I personally believe that's not the case. Uh, Radicalization rises from oppression, marginalization and feeling victimized and powerless. But social media has in fact made it very easy for these radical groups to spread their ideas. And radicalization doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go and commit a terrorist attack, but you see all this, let's say, harassment and bullying of people who have opposing views and this lack of tolerance that also kind of accounts to radicalization. The UNESCO study is very interesting. They made a list of some of the strategies that are used by radical groups, and they didn't even narrow it down to only like groups such as ISIS and so on. They even included the right-wing groups, Nazi groups, uh, left-wing like Antifa and other groups like that, radicalization all over the spectrum. And some of these tactics are actually very relevant. So I'll read some of the points and you can tell me what you think of them. Uh, The first point was create appealing, interactive, user-friendly platforms to attract younger audiences. The second point is disseminate extremist, violent and criminal content, which would not be well received offline. And uh, deliver massive publicity for acts of violence and enhancing perception of strength. That is a very important one, telling people that they will actually succeed, that they will take over the world, that their ideology will actually become dominant. That is a very strong point and one of the tactics used by many radical groups. And establishing this sense of intimacy and brotherhood with the the younger audiences. All these things were, in fact, facilitated by social media because you can do these wide broadcasts that target a big audience and then you can also go into more intimate interactions with the younger or more vulnerable segment of the population. Do you think they're actually the strategies that are used by these groups? Uh, Yeah, I do. I I think that those groups do use those strategies, absolutely. I, I think those strategies are able to be used. I think this is really important. Um, they're able to be used because people are uh, dissatisfied, they're angry, and so they're going to be more receptive to those messages. Uh, and th- th- I think what's important as we consider the impact that social media is having with radicalization and in politics more generally uh, is not to go to the point where we're saying, you know, that the whole world would be very peaceful, that whatever, you know, a perfect world that we might imagine would exist if it wasn't just for social media sowing discontent. Uh, I think the discontent that has been exploited by people who want to exploit it through encouraging radicalism and violence and protest and everything else, the reason they're able to do it is both because they've got social media to use, but also because there are large numbers of people who are discontented Uh, about things that are real things that are happening in their lives. In the Middle East, uh, I think that, you know, there are a lot of young people with no jobs. There are a lot of young people who have got good, reasonably good educations who are not able to turn that into a a future that they, uh, you know, might aspire to. They've got their education, they're looking forward and, you know, they're fair. They, they don't have much hope for turning that into a good life. In the U.S., we've seen you know, people's incomes uh, and jobs changing. Skilled workers, 
that expected to work for the same company for the rest of their lives with incomes that were larger than their parents now have uh, insecure jobs, they're losing their jobs, their income hasn't risen for something like 30 years. So these things are real, are real and as people seek to interpret what is happening with social media, I think it's got to be set alongside these things too. There are very real things going on that are influencing people's behavior as well. And so I think the two have got to be seen together and the solution to it's got to involve both sides as well. Many failed regimes or oppressive regimes like to scare the people of social media by telling them, see, like terrorism is caused by social media, where in fact they're just turning the lights away from them and making it face social media, when in reality radicalization, the seed of radicalization is planted essentially when these regimes oppress the people and marginalize them and promise them promises that they can't achieve. Social media is merely a tool that with or without it, radicalization would exist. But it is a fact that social media does help promote these ideas, but these ideas only stem because of the root cause, which is marginalization, oppression, repression, all these tied in together and economic failure as well. I want to end on a more positive note because we've been going through many negative points about social media. Do you think social media is creating more awareness amongst people about their political and social rights? Hmm. Interesting question. Possibly. I think that people are more aware perhaps about what is going on in the world, whether it's making them more aware of their rights I don't think I'd go that far. I, I think they're certainly aware of what's happening in the world, but I don't think they're more aware of any rights that they might have. So even with examples like Saudi Arabia, where people are becoming more and more aware of the, their social rights, or have these rights already been there in their heads and now people are more able to voice their opinions? Yeah, I think I understand your question, maybe I, I, I see it a little bit differently now then. And I, I think social media is making people more aware of uh, what happens in other countries, you know, how democracies operate. So if they're in a country that doesn't have democracy, I think access to the internet, uh, even censored access to social media and censored access to the internet, uh, which of course is the way it is in Saudi Arabia uh, and elsewhere in, in, in many other countries in the Middle East. Uh, I think in spite of censorship, they're more aware of the possibilities as far as rights are concerned. And I think it is causing an increased expectation that they may have those rights. So in that sense, I would agree with you. Uh, as I responded to your question at first, I, th I was thinking more of developed countries. And, you know, in developed countries, I don't think they're necessarily more aware of their rights. But the other area, that the thing that affects this is what we're seeing just now, too, uh, is people have more expectations of transparency as far as the companies that they deal with are concerned. You know, people are more concerned to know where the food they eat came from, how someone made it. Uh, you know, what the people were paid who produced it. That's the same with their clothes and their food and, you know, the other things that they buy. 
they feel they've got more rights of access uh, to organizations, you know, to get a response from them if they have a complaint uh, or a question. The internet has caused generally uh, uh, an increased expectation of transparency and accountability. So not just from the point of view of understanding how democracy might work in other countries, there's this general uh, change in expectations of how centers of authority uh, might behave and the visibility that they've got of things that affect them. And I think that is impacting their expectations of democracy in undemocratic countries. Now that you bring up expectations and better understanding of how you should be treated, it brings me to an example that is more relevant to here in North America, which is the Black Lives Matter movement, where African-Americans have become more aware of police brutality and what their rights are, for example, in the common interaction with, with the police, what the police are allowed to and what they are not allowed to do. Don't you think that's also an, a spread of awareness Awareness or an increase in awareness about their social rights? Uh, yes, I do. I, I don't know whether there's been more of that because of social media. There may have been. Uh, I, I haven't seen any work in this area, so I'm not sure. I certainly know, you know, a lot of work was done was to create awareness of rights uh, amongst areas of society or sections of society where uh, the, where those rights were perhaps badly affected uh, in the past. But at the same time, we're still seeing voter suppression in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere and things like that going on. So I wouldn't say that I thought that there, that there had been a big shift in developed countries as far as uh, awareness of rights of democracy were concerned. I want to end with a very simple yes or no question. Do you think the ancient Athenians, if they were alive today, would they have used Facebook Yes, I think everybody uses Facebook uh, and, 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 and would be likely to do so. It's amazingly popular. There's all sorts of things posted on there. I'm never amazed. I, I never cease to be amazed by some of the things we see posted there. Great source of entertainment. And uh, sure, I think uh, everyone in history would have used it if they could have. Okay, so the ancient Athenians, the founders of democracy, would use social media for politics? Um, it's a communication tool which makes communications uh, you know, a lot easier. One of the reasons that we use it, or one of the main reasons we use it, is because it enhances and strengthens our ability to communicate uh, beyond what we had before it. I think uh, social media would have been used by any uh, group historically if they had access to it. That about sums up the discussion for today. A special thanks to Dr. Carr for sharing his time and knowledge with us. And I look forward to hearing everybody's feedback regarding the topic of this episode. Thank you all for listening.